Hey, this is Nick Gibson. I just want to introduce the second person on this episode, which is Stanford Gibson. He is my brother. I invited him because I wanted someone who wasn't particularly doctrinaire about questions of origins, who ministers to college students regularly and is pretty highly educated, especially relative to the natural sciences. Stanford has a, a bachelor's in geology from SUNY Chelsea, an MA in civil engineering from UW-Madison, a PhD in engineering from UC Davis, also a master's in evolution and ecology from UC Davis, and he has a master's in theology from Wheaton College here in the Midwest. So he's got kind of a broad and interesting background of scientific and theological qualifications that I thought would be helpful if you're wondering why he's on the episode. I am hoping he's going to come and preach at High Point soon. We'll see if we can work it out. All right, so let's carry that spirit into some falsifying or, or uh, questions. <laughs> Yeah, you said there was going to be antagonistic questions. We haven't, <laughs> well, we haven't really done that, have we? Okay, so, um, all right. So the most straightforward verse that people gave me would be like, well, what about this verse? Is Genesis 3.20 where it says, Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. Well, right? And so yeah. a number of people have said, you know, like in that context, relative to, the, to what seems to be happening, it really sounds like Eve is going to be the mother of all the living humans. Which is exactly but, what happened, right? in the book right he, so he's she's the mother of all the living she's the mother of you and of me so what's the, what's the what's the problem i think the problem would be that that wouldn't have been true throughout human history right so like that but it so says if, the you crumb. Go, if we went back let's say we went back 5000 years she wouldn't have been the mother of maybe 70% of the global population or 50% of the global population and as we move closer to the present right it becomes more and more and more and more where at some point it becomes she is an ancestral mother of all the living but there would be thousands if not millions of living humans throughout human history after she was alive who she wouldn't have been the mother of so do you just well, say so like that's, we have that's to read the bible well. take away look at it well i mean i just say that that's in conflict with scripture itself that type of thinking because look when adam says this himself you know there's a lot of living things on earth that eve is not ancestor of she's not ancestor she's not the mother of adam and somehow that didn't bother him um there's animals in the garden um, somehow, but she's not their mother and she never even becomes their mother. That doesn't bother them, though they are living too. And people say, well, wait a minute. That's clearly not what it means. Well, that's not literally what it says. It says everyone that's living is going to be, and that, and that includes our pets, right? They're living too. Well, what's going on here? And the reason I'm pressing that point isn't to say scripture is false. It's just to point out this fact that it has contextual boundaries. Mm-hmm. And we have to ask, well, what are those contextual bounds? And the contextual bounds is, well, it's saying that everyone that scripture is talking about descends from Adam and Eve. That's like the most strict way to put it. And that's true. Now, at the same token, we have to look also at what's going on here. This is Adam saying it in a fallen state. This is not God saying it. And so how do we even know that that's true? <laughs> From a scriptural point of view, it's not the teaching of scripture that Eve is the mother of all the living. That's hard to derive because that's actually not at least from that verse, that is not actually what it's saying. It's not God is saying this to her. This is Adam in a fallen state saying it to Eve. Um, it could be interpreted, and some people have interpreted it as a defiant statement of saying, yeah, we've been cursed, but yeah, don't worry about it. We're going to be the ones that are winning. We're going to come out on top. And so why should we give credence to that? And so that's another way to put it. But ultimately, though, in the most straightforward, plain, literal reading of it, um, we could say that Adam was correct that Eve did become ancestor of all, of all living and uh, he, she wasn't the ancestor of him and he didn't mean all of our pets and all our livestock. He meant all people. Um, 
And he didn't know about people across the globe at that point, but that's fine. Even in that context, by 81, you know, about 2000 years ago, everyone does ascend by her. So it's, it's hard to even identify what the conflict, what the co- contradiction actually is. I, th- uh, I, think, I think people who hold to what I sometimes call a literal interpretation of scripture, but most people would say would be the grammatical historical, like in the grammar yeah. of the time, in the historical context. So would we think that, for example, like if you had like a little Jewish boy at the time of David, he's in a like he's learning the scriptures and somebody said and somebody said reads that to him and they go, OK, so what is you know, what is God telling us? Did, did, is, is Eve the mother of the like the Arabites and the Persians and the whoever else is? You know, what would, would would Jews have been like, well, what this means is cause I, I don't know. Over, I don't know. Over rabbinical well, so like about 4000 years ago, Eve would have been the mothers of all the Persians and all of the, all of the people that they knew in the world. They didn't know about the Americas. They didn't know about Australia. They didn't know about India. Oh, I mean, they didn't know about India. So so even in that context, every person that that guy knew about would probably be a descendant of Adam and Eve. Do you, OK, so I think one of the things that like when I've talked to some people who are skeptical of this view in my church, they, they would say something like this. The distinction between a a um, genealogical Eve and a genetic Eve, right, is a is one that we make now because we know all kinds of scientific stuff. But if you if you take um, gen, the quote genetic Eve, right, and you make that less scientific, just like she's literally the one we all came from. She was the first one. Yeah, and I'm right? agreeing with that. I'm affirming that. Uh, the th- issue is that it doesn't say anything about DNA. So I don't have to look. No, uh, so so I think, right? so I, th- okay. So I think to be fair to these people's arguments, I think that they would say that, um, that there's an equivocation there that what they mean by, or what they would think people would colloquially or understand to mean the mother of all the living isn't what you're saying, mother of all the living, but it would be a different meaning that like, she's the progenitor, she's the sole progenitor. That well, I agree that Adam and Eve would be our sole progenitors from the point of view of scripture and from that story. So, I mean, so I, they may just not aren't understanding what I'm saying. I'm saying is that actually what they are saying is absolutely true. That the, the, the way there will be a conflict is if they rule out people outside the garden. But young earth creationism historically has been open to that. And so it really is saying that that view, that young earth creationist view from a historical point of view is entirely consistent with Genesis. So you're saying sole progenitor, sole progenitor, how that term is even used by young earth creationists today is entirely consistent with evolutionary science. There was just there was just other lineages that ended up interbreeding as well. But all humans from the point of view of scripture are the direct descendants of Adam and Eve. That's how that's how uh, the humans of scripture are defined. So I'm not actually disagreeing. It's not an equivocation. I'm literally saying, yeah, I agree. If you're making space for people outside the garden, then your view actually makes sense. Yeah, I, th- I think that's one of the things that is fundamental to the book is that um, is that you have to include the implied existence of people outside the garden in your first premises. Yeah, that's like a where, Like when you start, like you have your first set of premises and one of those premises is there are people outside the garden. Yes. Now, if you if you stipulate that, then I think what you're saying follows. Like you're like, well, yeah. So you have to you, make a you have to resolve case. that point. You have to make a scriptural case against people outside the garden. Now, right. I'm 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 willing to completely acknowledge that there's no way to uh, box a scripturalist into thinking that there are people outside the garden. But there's no way to scripturally box me out of it either. In the same way, you know, I can't make a case for germ theory in scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can't make a case against it either. 
Okay, so let me say it this way. Let me say it this way. Let's say I I had grown up in a box in which there was no way for me to have scientific information. I only have scriptural information. And so I'm trying to make sense of this with all my theoretical possibilities. If the premise that there are people outside the garden doesn't exist, I think that Eve is the only mother of all the living. She's the only one. But no one believes that because they would all believe also that, you know, Adam and Eve had other children that we'd expect would be the mother of all the living too. So even, even if you take the point of view, there's no people outside the garden, there's other people other than, than Eve that are mother of all the living. So, you know, there's a point where, you know, if you think about it carefully, that type of escape to say there's a conflict, it isn't actually coherent. I mean, it just ends up being logically contradictory. So you're trying, what you're trying to say is you're trying to say, you're trying, you're trying to say only, only I think what, the right way to put it is that if, if what you believe is Adam and Eve are the, the couple from which we all derive and there was no other lineages that input, but that doesn't mean that there wasn't other, uh, other mothers of all the living. Cause even if there wasn't input, there were still other mothers of all the living. Does, does that make sense or no? Okay. Okay. So if you, if you think of the population as like a, a, a pyramid and in this case you would have the narrowest part at the top rather than at the, at the bot. Right. And so it depends on if you mean, when you get to the bottom of the pyramid, who's the mother of all these people? And the answer is, well, lots of people. Yeah. That's right? right. But if you're saying all the living is everyone in the pyramid, except for the top couple that started every single person, then in yeah. that case, only Eve would be the mother of all the living. Right. So what I'm saying is a lot like a lot of people that I know who have read the Bible have assumed what mother of all the living means is there is a pyramid of all the people on planet Earth. Adam and Eve are the only people not in that pyramid. And so therefore, Eve is the only woman yeah. who is the mother of the living. And what I'm saying is in your theory, the oh, thing but, but that, I can affirm that, that, in, that too. That interscripturally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, the, but you're getting to the key point. That has, is how most people have seen it. And the key point that I'm making, and this is. This is where it gets from from the definition of human. It really comes down to what you mean by human. So if what you mean by human, from a scriptural point of view I'm talking about, includes the people outside the garden, then where you're going is true. There is a conflict. But what I'm saying is, why don't we just take the scripture's definition of human, which I think there's pretty good precedence for saying the scripture's definition of human is Adam and Eve and their descendants. So Adam and Eve and their descendants are a pyramid of people that have Adam and Eve in the top. It doesn't include the, the other lineages. But wouldn't that mean that people in India 7,000 years ago aren't human? Yeah. So what it means is that they're not the humans that scripture is referring to. And so um, so this is why some people think that Adam and should be more ancient mm-hmm. is because the way they talk about the word human, they mean human-like qualities like a human mind, mm-hmm. um, things that make us uniquely human and all that sort of stuff. But that's not how scripture talks about human. It's just not. That's a very modern uh, way of thinking about it. Maybe not entirely modern, maybe a medieval way of thinking about it. If you go back to the, the Thomistic way of, of, of defining human from uh, you know systematic theology. But if we care about biblical theology and what scripture actually says, not what humans have philosophized about scripture much more, much later, um, we have to understand that human is a very modern concept too. When, the, when If you went and talked to them about what's human, they wouldn't have the same baggage that we do too. Um, and you know, the way how most people, you know, reading scripture at that time would understand it, it would just be, at least I think would be, you know, they're talking about Adam and Eve's lineage. Those are the, those are the people that scripture is talking about. Maybe there's other people, maybe there's other people on other planets. They didn't know about planets. Maybe there's other people on other planets and other universes like the, you know, like the Chronicles of Narnia, but those aren't, those just aren't the people that scripture is talking about. 
And so they're kind of, uh, they're in the peripheral vision at most, or they're, they're just not, the, the spotlight isn't on them. The spotlight is on this pyramid that goes from Adam and Eve out. And so they are our soul progenitors. It's just that their lineage wasn't pure. So there's other people that end up giving um, input into our story, but that's just not the focus of scripture. So it ends up being, it's, it's a perspective point. Um, it is a hermeneutical point, and I think it's a strong one too. Where it- okay, so, so let me let me ask you this way, then. I, I know this is contentious, and it probably deserves two hours and three beers in itself. But like, um, so if you went back in your own historical line, like being of Indian descent, if we go back, if would we say that you today, we know that you're human in the scriptural sense because you're descended from Adam and Eve, who bear the image of God. And so whenever it is your line came into contact with, or my line came into contact with the line of Adam and Eve, we know then at that point we were in the lineage of the image of God and therefore are human in the scriptural sense. Well, so this gets to another assumption in that question that the, that the image of God is unique to Adam and Eve. I think that's a hard case to make from scripture. It's very possible that God made people in the image of God and then later made Adam and Eve. That, who are also in the image of God, but the reason why they're important theologically is because they fell. And so um, it also depends on what you mean by the image of God, too. And like it's a big debate, too, about what that means. But what I'd say is that my 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 ancestors, and they're also not just my ancestors, they're also your ancestors in India. That's right. So we can't talk about my lineage and your lineage. That's not That's not a sensible way to talk about it. What it means is our ancestors that were in India before they mixed with the Adamese lineage we're fully human in all the ways we tend to think about human from a modern point of view. They, they were, they had, uh, they had language. They were just as intelligent. They had rational minds. They may have had eternal souls. All these sorts of things were true of them. It's just that they weren't the descendants of Adam and Eve. They weren't subject to the fall the same way that we were. And uh, we can debate about whether or not they were in the image of God, but whatever it was, they had full human rights and dignity. It's not that they were less human. They were just a different sort of human in the same way as if we found intelligent aliens on Mars, right? Or on another planet. And so, um, but what happened? They were exactly like us. They were exactly like us, except they weren't descendants of Adam and Eve. They weren't subject to the fall in the same way as were we. And scripture wasn't talking about them. So they had a different relationship with scripture. In fact, we know that for a fact. They had never read scripture because scripture hadn't been written yet. <laughs> and so, you know, they were on a different side of redemptive history. Jesus hadn't died yet. And uh, and so so they, their, their, uh, their dispensation of grace had to have been different than ours. It doesn't mean that God didn't know or care about them. Maybe he did. Didn't mean that God didn't communicate with them, but uh, but we don't know how He did because He didn't tell us in Scripture, and that changes how we theologically think about them in retrospect. But they're fully human in important ways, but they're also not the humans of Scripture, and the humans of Scripture still begin with Adam and Eve alone, with no one else in that category across the globe. They're the people of the garden, and no one else is the, are the people of the garden. And God, you know, uh, is into a special covenantal relationship with them. And in that sense, they're the only humans on earth because they're the only one. In the same way, you know, there's only one woman on earth for me. It's my wife, Victoria. I'm in a covenantal relationship with her, right? That doesn't mean that there isn't literally uh, or physically other people or other women out there. It's just that in the covenantal language, she's the only woman on earth, right? (laughs) Um, And it's the same sort of thing going on with Adam and Eve. There's a covenantal sacred humanity that God creates that 
uh, have been given the privilege of dwelling with him directly in the garden. And I would argue uh, are tasked with uh, the holy privilege of bringing the rest of humanity into the garden. And that's just not what's going on with our other lineages. So, so this really protects against a lot, a lot of the failures that people have had in this in the past. And we're kind of going down more racist points of view and all that. We're all, we're all connected. I mean, there is no my lineage in India, meaning not yours. It's your lineage too. It's really more about how did we come to be who we are? And it's by the mixing of these many different lines. Mm -hmm. Uh, Okay. So I just, Stan, let me just clarify something quick, then I'll give it to you. I just want to clarify for those who are listening, because I know some are listening are young earth creationists, and you're going to wonder why I don't continue to argue with Joshua at this point. And the point is, that is not the point of this podcast. The point is for me to ask him an antagonistic question and then let him answer it. And Mm -hmm. so if you're like, well, Nick, you should, that's not the point of this podcast. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, I think if you're trying to talk to the young earth creationists, let me just add too that the best of creationism is commitment to scripture. Yeah. And it's not. It's about, you know, kind of not putting an emphasis on human tradition. You know, I would say is that young earth creationism is a human tradition. Look at scripture itself and test what I'm, what I'm saying here with scripture. And I don't think you're going to find a conflict. So I have a couple thoughts about that. One is I think any, we're all uncomfortable talking about different kinds of humans. Right. And um, that is, you know, that personally, that's why I like, I prefer an older Adam and Eve. But I think that one of the things that, one of the things that's really interesting about the argument that you're making is that the argument that you're making is only possible because of the things we've learned that actually make us less racist. And the things, <laughs> right, the things that we've learned in the last 10, 20, 30 years that, that make, that make racism a little bit absurd is the amount of genetic mixing that, the, that they aren't your ancestors in India. They're my ancestors in India, right? That we, that, that there's also a genetic Adam and Eve from the Indus Valley or, or you would, you would do a better job coming up with the names of what their actual names would be. But we uh, all descend from people in, in, in India and, and right. Australia right. and, and, and America too. Right. And so, um, the you know to using the word human is is a little bit unhelpful because of the way it's been used in racist um in, in racist rhetoric in the past but if you think about how god had a special people that was israel that that was a line for a special mission if you think of of this line of adam and eve um as a if you're willing to postulate to stipulate people outside of the garden and if you're willing to even stipulate that they were also created somehow in the image of God, then the special line of Adam and Eve is the line is like the chosen people of Israel. It's the line through which God is doing something special to bless the whole world. Right. It seems like humanity or sacred humanity. Yeah. It seems like that's kind of the implication of this view is that instead of like thinking of Adam as the first human and Abraham as the first covenant progenitor of the covenant story, it's kind of like taking the covenant story and pushing it back to Adam. You're saying like, I think so. Adam's not the first well, covenant. That's what a lot of theological already think, right? So I'm not doing anything new there. Like there's something called covenantal theology that does literally yeah. that um, in, in reformed theology. This is one of like the key traditions in the church that cares about Adam and Eve. So um, it's more I'm reminding us of that, but it's not about not human. What, what I think, we don't want to think about them in the origins of human as we understand it in a modern sense. That's but right. Scripture isn't talking about humans in a modern sense. And so that's not a valid reason from my point of view. That's like, that's a type of eisegesis to think, well, because the way I understand human as a modern right now, um, Adam and Eve would have to be 
ancestor of all of them, so therefore they should be far more ancient. That doesn't make a lot of sense because that's using categories that they didn't have. They weren't really talking. I mean, if you read Genesis um, on its own terms, it's hard to make a case. It's talking about the first human mind or the first rational mind. However, you do see some pretty good indications that it's talking about the rise of civilization, the rise of agriculture, the rise of cities. Um, and that is, interestingly enough, though you don't see the human mind arise recently, it rises much more ancient, um, somewhere between maybe 200 to 500 or maybe even 2 million years ago, you see the human mind arise. It's different when it comes to, to civilization. Civilization arises very recently within the time frame of scripture, within a young earth creationist timeline. And that is, seems to be what the dominant themes of, uh, of Genesis really are. So I think uh, from a scriptural point of view, I think it's very hard to sustain that modern view of human. And it really raises questions about why we don't care about thinking theologically about the rise of civilization. The number of questions I have is rising exponentially, Stan. Um, <laughs> what is that? Just every, everything you say, I like I have nine more questions. About, well, go for about, it. But, <laughs> you can always split it into two podcasts, right? Yeah. Um, Stan, did you want to ask the your friend asked that question about um, population distributions with Neanderthals and Des um, Denisovians, I think they're called, and like how it doesn't seem like they're the ancestor of everyone, but they had much longer to do it. That whole question. No, because oh, I yeah, think they would be, we would all descend from Neanderthals too, right? Because Neanderthals interbred with us, and so um, those not all of us have genetic information from Neanderthals. All of us would gen genealogically descend from them too. Yeah. Oh, so you're saying so? Like, so there's certain what's become part of popular knowledge is that there are some some markers or genetic information and or even like diseases that are connected to some genetic. But that's genetic ancestry. In terms of genealogical ancestry, we all descend from them. So I think I that one that. of the one of the helpful ideas, and also um, I always just love something that's cleverly phrased um, in in your book, is the idea of a genetic ghost. Um, <laughs> and so that that we all have these genetic ghosts. There are lots of people that we are descended from that left no genetic information, um, and so. You know, the, there are some people that have Neanderthal DNA, and but um, we all are descended from them. Just for some of us, they're gene, they're they're genetic ghosts. They they don't show up. They've been trimmed out of our genome because of the way those two funnels work. But we, it, you know, we that's just part of that's just part of what it is to be a, a human is to have some you know some background in the Neanderthals. Yeah, because my understanding is in terms of genetic information that's been passed along, it's mostly groups of certain Europeans that have discernible Neanderthal um, genetics. And you, you tend don't to see that. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And then Denisovans we tend to see in people that are more Asian. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a debate about what actual Denisovans are. Some people say they were just the Asian Neanderthal. So, yeah, that was uh, that was the stuff I read on that to, so that I would know who the Denisovans even were. Said <laughs> that it seemed like there was evidence that the Neanderthals and the Denisovans interbred. Yeah, or or maybe they were sim very similar. Well, it just turns out that like these, a lot of these ideas of very distinct lineages end up really falling apart when you start looking at genetic data. There's just a lot more interbreeding than we thought. From a genealogical point of view, yeah, we all descend from from them to all of us. Just not all of us got DNA from them. So for some of us, 
those Neanderthals are just genetic ghosts. You look at our DNA and you don't see any evidence of them. But that doesn't mean that they that we didn't descend from them. It just means that that they that that we don't expect the DNA to be in all of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know you're right actually. It's I want to point out that these conversations about humans are uncomfortable, right? What is human, what's not? But it comes up everywhere. So a big question that arises is then, you know, were these Neanderthals human too? Were they in the image of God? Yeah, I don't even find it uncomfortable yet. To me, it's still just disorienting. I think I'll get to uncomfortable <laughs> at some point. But, but it doesn't have to be uncomfortable, right? The reality is that, you know, Scripture teaches that we're continuous with the created order, but God's doing something special with us. Uh, what, what's actually really striking about the story is that the God of all creation, the God that made all of this, cares to be in covenant with us. That's the puzzling thing. Mm-hmm. The reality is, is that we're continuous with creation. And, and yet, why would the creator care so much about his creation? That's the grand puzzle. And so the, these points where we understand the, are the continuity between um our species, our, our kind, and the created order is deeply consistent with scripture. I think its intention with the reality is that there's something different about us. We're in, we're in dominion over the rest of the earth. We certainly have a capacity for things that, uh, that the rest of creation doesn't have. Um, um, but but, but don't you, God would love us. I, I, I don't have a good account for that. I, but I think part of the issue, though, is, is that one of the things that we've done so far, I think to somebody who like – didn't know this and wouldn't have believed this stuff before even hearing about this kind of theory is they're like, Oh crap. All these sentences that I thought meant something definite now can mean one or more of 27 different things. So the phrase like when God says, fill the earth and take dominion over it. What in God's name does that mean now? Because the earth's already filled. Like there's already populations of people everywhere and those people are already doing stuff there. So like, what does that mean? Like, it doesn't mean what people normally think. People normally think that the earth is empty of humans and Adam and Eve are going to make human peoples and that they're well, going to I mean, we should be careful about create population appealing to what people think because there's many types of people and many people have thought very different things about that. Well, in the Judeo-Christian tradition, there hasn't been a lot of variance on that. I mean, that's what there's been that's quite what, a bit of variance on that. So um so in terms of what actually is the image of God, there's been an immense amount of variance. So um and no, no, the, but, but okay, but to be fair, that's not what I said. I said what it means to take dominion and to populate the earth. Those two phrases, not image of God. You're right. There's all kinds of views on what image of God particularly means. I totally agree with that. But most people thought take dominion and to um, populate the earth meant that the earth lacked human population, right? And that Adam and Eve, as they made more humans, were going to increase the population of the earth quite dramatically. I mean, Christian, I, I mean, think- I, I don't know. I mean, I just uh, from what I've read in historical theology, I just see a lot of debate about that. I mean, we, we can we can go over that. But I, I mean, mean, definitely in the last 200 years. But I mean, as somebody who I mean, so I don't have the same science background as you. But as somebody I mean, who I mean going back 2000 years, there's been a lot of debate about this. But um, and even well, I mean, I, I've read thousands of pages of the fathers and I don't know of any just any disagreement about it i mean i'm not saying that they're right i'm just saying no no, no. Just, you're right. people <laughs> thought that meant so and the reason why right I said on... this is disorienting i'm like because i think people thought they that they knew what those two things meant and now they're like well maybe those mean something totally different okay right? so let me probably the part that i agree with you i'd say the majority of people like two thousand years ago that's probably what they meant probably but i think it's important to recognize a couple things about that um, and it's not just 200 years ago. You go back 500 years ago, uh, it was 
it was basically a free-for-all thinking different points of view because of the discovery of the Americas. And why was that? It's because at the same time, if you go back 2,000 years ago, uniformly amongst the church fathers, they believed, they were okay with the idea of a globe, the earth being a globe, but they were all convinced that there was no one on the other side of the globe. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, it, so the idea was, you know, is the earth curved or flat? They all agreed that the, cur- that the earth really did look curved. Mm-hmm. They weren't flat earthers. Right. And it seemed like it was consistent with being a globe. So the idea is, did the earth have an antipode? And they said, yeah, okay, we have no problem with the, the, the earth having an antipode. And, um, and then the next question was, well, are there people on the antipode? Are there antipodians? Or another way to put it, are there Native Americans? Mm-hmm. Are there Australians? That's what they asked. And then uniformly, they came to the conclusion of, like, of course there isn't. There's no people over there. And the reason why is that would contradict Scripture. Scripture is very clear that the gospel is going to go out to the whole earth and it has gone out to the whole earth. And so, you know, uh, and so if there were people on the other side, that would mean that scripture is false. That's what they believed. And, uh, and they didn't really prepare for the possibility that they would be wrong on that. And so 500 years ago, when we discovered that not only was the earth globe, we already knew that, but that there were people over there. And not only that, these people had never heard about Jesus. That was a major theological crisis. And so what was going on is that they were just being reminded that scripture is, uh, you know, while scripture is telling us a story with universal significance, it's intention with the very particular nature of it. It's, it's not actually giving us the whole view. And so what I'm saying is that this is just no different in the same way the church had to wrestle with the idea of antipodians and people in Australia and people in, in, uh, in the Americas when that was discovered is part of the Genesis tradition is really trying to figure out what to make of them. And this is just really no different, no different than, than that. And so I'm just inviting us to consider the antipodian. Uh, does, does that make some sense? What I'm saying? I think what you're saying makes sense. I think the, I think the, so one of the things that, that, like what I've spent my life studying is interpretation, right? And history of the church and so on. Right. And, um, I completely agree that people throughout the history of the church have thought there was definiteness where there wasn't. Mm -hmm. That definitely happens. There's no question about that. I don't know of anybody who would disagree with that. Um, However, I, I also think that like throughout the history of the church, if there's a continuity of Christian doctrine, then some of those definitenesses had to have been correct. Yeah, I agree with you on that entirely. Right? And then one of the things that can be, can be really frustrating is interacting with some people who do theological interpretation where it seems like they think any language can mean anything. And it's like <laughs> an unlimited amount of possibilities and nothing is definite. So, I mean, I've, I've talked to people about like – like the doctrine of the atonement or what resurrection has to mean, or like, I mean, very yeah. important new Testament doctrines and people are like, well, but that could really mean this or it could mean that. Or you're like, no, it doesn't. Like, it, like the, the apostles used gr- grammar and sentences to try to like be kind of clear about this. And so now, now I'm not saying that it's also necessarily true that exactly what people thought about, like take dominion or fill the earth is, but I think that one of the things I think that is disorienting about like the theory in this book is it's, it's very clean and elegant to, to say, hey, look, the Bible seems to leave room that there are people outside the garden. Like, it seems to actually assume it in places. The minute you put that premise into the first premises of understanding creation, it has to complexify the situation in some way similar to the way you're saying. 
Mm-hmm. Fine. Now here's the problem with that. That I think that rewrites everything. I think it literally rewrites the way you understand every single thing from Genesis one one through to the New Testament. Well, like, I, think, I think it just brings us back to the Genesis tradition. Like, let me remind you, one of the big debates in Genesis is whether or not Genesis one and Genesis two are describing the same events or if they're sequential. Are they recapitulating the same events or are they sequential? I'm not the first person to raise this. It's not a recent idea. People have been wondering this for a very long time. So one way to actually read this is to say you're saying the people understood Genesis 1 of talking about people populating the whole earth when there were no people out there. Well, maybe that is what it means. And it's not talking about Adam and Eve. It's talking about a people God made in God's image a very, very long time before Adam and Eve. Maybe 200,000 years ago, maybe 2 million years ago. I don't know, depending on how you see it. And then that is what it's talking about. So it's not rewriting it. It's just saying that we just tended to accidentally collapse that into the same story with Adam and Eve. And in fact, you can see that even if that is what we did, we collapsed. There's a resonance there because God is still asking them as the sacred humans to spread out across all of Earth. And there are no other sacred humans out there. Uh, There's no other covenantal humans out there. So you can still understand it that way. So... I'm not trying to say that there is an infinite range. The part that I think I have a hard time with is when people try and hone in on one way to understand it and say that's the only way. So you talk about the resurrection. Um, what you're getting to is the fundamentalist modernist split, which is closely connected to what happened with Adam and Eve. They looked at things like Adam and Eve, Jesus's miracles, and Jesus's resurrection. And they said, well, maybe when it's just enough to have a resurrection, quote, event. And I affirm the resurrection event, but I don't affirm that it was actually literally his body that was that was risen from the dead. And that's a wild departure from Christian theology, right? And what's going on there is that they're honing in on things that are probably true. Like the resurrection was an event that had a big impact. Mm-hmm. Um, it was something that they had a vision of, but that doesn't mean it wasn't actually physically true. So that idea of going to say, well, it was these and, and emphasize that doesn't actually invalidate the other side of it, right? And so, right, and then there's an exegetical question of what did, did the biblical author in fact mean? Like, what did Luke mean? Did Luke mean an, a resurrection event happened that was somewhat cognitive and mythological in their conceptualizations of the possible futures of Jesus' meaning? Or did it mean Jesus the man rose from the dead, which changed their conceptualizations about the future of life, death, and meaning? And I think it's very hard to sustain that modernist view that it was just a resurrection event. I think it just leaves too many questions unanswered. I think N.T. Wright's a great person to read on this. You just can't really make sense of the origin of the church if it was just an event, quote unquote, without a physical bodily resurrection. Now, I agree with that. And and so I'm trying to say there are constraints, but you have to think about it a little carefully. I'm not saying anything goes. And what I would say is there's a lot of people who say the same thing. And I would say that's part of where the anxiety about Biologos comes, is a lot of people for historically, though, to be clear, Biologos affirms the bodily resurrection of Jesus. But the problem is that they're also saying things that people historically have said about Adam and Eve that was paired with that, right? And they said that, you know, well, maybe Adam and Eve as real people isn't important and original sin isn't important. Maybe, um, yeah. maybe uh, descent isn't important. Um, in fact, some of them even said that it's a that it's a mistake to think about dissent being important. And some of them even has gone so far as to say that um, original sin is a is a major wrong turn. Now you start saying things like that, that starts to go into once again a very large departure from many traditions in the church, and and it, it creates anxiety. And I'm not saying that. Look, I'm saying look, I'll, I'll agree with you that narrowly focusing on uh, just some doctrinal 
affirmations about original sin is pretty impoverished. There's more to it than that. And, and there is a mythological or like a symbolic archetypal component to Genesis, but that doesn't negate the idea yeah. that there's legitimacy to those doctrinal affirmations and, and, and a physical reality behind it. And I think it's far more productive to start thinking about, well, how do we think about all of these layers of the text together rather than trying to be reductive down to just like a litmus test statement of, of doctrine or, you know, or just trying to non-thinkingly just say, well, I affirm scripture, which means it has to be this interpretation, that's scripture, yada, yada, yada. You have to agree with me on this, but I'm not going to think about it. We're invited into a conversation to think about this and to wonder about the puzzles together. And I'd say that is actually far more yeah. true to the Christian tradition than, uh, than, uh, than any sort of rigid traditionalism or literalism. I think that there's space to wonder. It's, it's actually an invitation to wonder about it. Yeah, okay, I totally agree with that. I, and I think that if you don't accept that to a certain extent, you enter into a kind of anti-intellectualism that is very unhelpful, right? Which is where you get fundamentalist, secondary separation, all that kind of stuff. However, one of the things I find among intellectual, intelligent people is the ability to take God telling them to do something and demanding faithfulness and obedience and them turning that into a, to quote Genesis, a did God say like the entering inner creativity and intelligence into the into the interpretive process such that this could mean like for example i know lots of people who would say um i yeah i believe all of scripture is is god's word and then they just premarital sex is fine like the whole they find a way that like the whole biblical sexual ethic which is like there's hundreds of words and sentences dedicated to it throughout scriptures it's like it's just they just like it's it's just not really it just says be careful and be monogamous that's basically what it says and i'm like that's actually actually not what it says like it's much more definite than that so I, one of the things that I, I find you know with the younger people as they come to some of this stuff is as we make things like interpretations of genesis where there's a lot of scientific like interactions so on and you're like look we got to really open some of this stuff up there's also a problem with human nature that humans love to open stuff up so that it's less definite especially when it's an authoritative text relative to their obedience and their discipleship and I, like for human beings to find that balance of like curiosity and faithful obedience i find is difficult for humans to to like get right yeah i mean you might be right um i mean we're fallen people right <laughs> look i get the problem you're talking about but to take the text seriously means that we have to question our our first instincts about the text too and so i mean i'm not trying to and, say there isn't the right answer and our traditions like to a certain yeah. extent in our traditions, because on some level, I think. Look, I think, I think, I think the even the, even the, is on one hand. I want to talk about how so much is possible, and I want to talk about the range. But the same token, would stand. I want to get into it, impress him with like, like what really is the reason you're pushing it back two hundred thousand years? That doesn't really seem plausible to me. Now, I mean, the reasoning doesn't seem plausible. Like maybe you're right. Who knows? But. I think there's an invitation to do both is that I can make space for him and say, you know, there's no scientific position problem with your point of view. Right. Also, maybe your point of view is consistent with scripture. Yeah. I still want to have the argument with you about it right. because that's what family does. We argue about it's stuff that's right. important. And, and in that, maybe we'll come to consensus. I don't have to control it. I don't have to define ahead of time what the answer is going to be. Um, it can be an untamed conversation. And, and that's okay because my confidence is elsewhere, but that's, that's, I think, the way to think about it. I think what's really behind it, ultimately, what creates a conflict um, is our need at times for control. 
our control uh, about what we're going to think about what other people are going to think and um and or not to have scripture speak to us and control us and ultimately that's not how this is going to go we're too small to control this if it's real if it's really engaged with reality if it's really engaged with the diversity of the church we don't actually have control and so we have to be content to be doing the best we can to be faithful to scripture and engaging with Christians we really disagree with and hashing it out and, um, and trust that, you know, uh, that the Holy Spirit guides the church, that, that, that it's going to work out. And, and I think it will. Um, does that make any sense or, or am I too optimistic? <laughs> Maybe both. I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I think that one to answer Nick's question a little bit, um, I think that one of the issues is the like precision of the text, right? Like, so to say that the precision of Genesis is the same as the precision of four gospel accounts and lots of Pauline theology and non-Pauline theology on the resurrection, that those are like equal, right? Or that the, uh, the precision of the text on who Adam and Eve are and in precisely what, how they functioned versus the Christian sexual ethic, the levels of precision that, that the text has are just miles apart. There's much more ambiguity in those Genesis texts about the person, the personhood and the exact like setting of Adam and Eve than either of those other two examples. And so I think it's a little, and so I understand that we're nervous about, you know, having a, looser hermeneutic or looser interpretation of certain texts that then would be applied elsewhere. But that's just part of what has to be taught is that we need to apply the appropriate interpretation for the appropriate genre, for the appropriate setting, and did not demand Genesis to speak with the same level of precision that we, that we get out of a combined account of the gospels in Paul. Okay, let me call. Let me call. I need to call BS on you two scientists. Okay, because listen, I'm very sympathetic to this, but I exist between your two worlds. I exist in relationship to people in your world, and then I exist in relationship to people with IQs of 90 that work at Quick Trip. And there is no freaking way to believe that the scriptures are like written to be analyzed with people of, with IQs north of 140 who can engage. Like on, on some level, you could do all this work. But at some point, you have to get it back to where the scriptures make wise the simple and like normal people can like interact straightforwardly. I mean, like, for example, the idea of the image of God. Absolutely true that it's like it's shrouded in the sort of mythological genre of Genesis 1 in following, even though it's a straightforward narrative and all, all that kind of stuff is all kind of interworking. Yet by the time you get to the New Testament, when people say this idea, like this idea of the like image of God or what a human being comes up, it's assumed you functionally know what that means, that it's not shrouded in like imperceivable mystery or that it has like nine possible meanings. Like the assumption that you have a pretty good intuitive sense of what that means is considered definite right now. You can still say within that definite meaning, there are lots of sub understandings, right? That's totally fine. You can always take something and move it to a more nuanced perspective and learn more. I mean, about is, it. You're, you're hitting on a place where there's just immense disagreement among scholars right now about what the image of God is. So, I mean, and then, you know, you might be right, except for there's going to be disagreement amongst the scholars about what I don't, God I don't think there's a lot of disagreement about what, about what the image of God morally is. I think that there's a big, big disagreement about what it ontologically is. There's always been disagreement about the ontological meaning of the image of God, but not its moral meaning in terms of like the status of human beings and their moral status. 
Actually, there's been a there, I think that there is. I mean, I think a, a lot of people would argue that grounding human rights and dignity in the image of God is not a sensible thing to do. Yet that's what we do in our culture, a large part because of people like Martin Luther King, which who I agree with on a lot of things. And I'm just telling you, this is these are places of, of, of debate. And actually, scripture doesn't even really talk about human rights and dignity. Um, so that, that that's like a concern we bring to the conversation. So. Oh, wait, don't you think that's that's a like you're getting back to your own issue of like the vocab- our scientific vocabulary is like human rights is is modern legal vocabulary. But if you if you look at yeah. issues with human rights, you find them dealt with all over the scriptures. Well, you're right. So the whole concept, look, look, you, you talked about it's a person who's, who's not as educated. Look, I think that they generally find this to be fascinating. When I talk to young earth creationists that are not educated, I ask them, haven't you ever wondered about what the Nephilim were and if there were people outside the garden? Almost uniformly, they'll say, yeah, I wondered about that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so... You know, when you talk about the purposecuity of scripture, the idea that it's very easy to interpret. Yeah, I mean, people have been wondering about this. Like a child will read Genesis and start asking about Cain's wife. Yeah. And what happens actually is that in the young earth creationist culture is that we train people out of that. Uh, we train people out of that plain reading to say, well, that's just because you're confused. This is really what the right reading is. That's what scripture teaches. Um, except for that's just another interpretation. I, I'm actually not trying to get a looser hermeneutic. I'm trying to actually bring people back to the way they were reading it from the beginning. Like, you know, okay, and so, that's actually sort of, uh, okay, sort of, but like, okay, let me like, here, like, for example, um, if you can understand the phrase, uh, fill the earth and take dominion and, and you, and you could build in like three or four possible, like, possibilities of how things were playing out those could mean fundamentally but those words can mean different things relative to our assumed background narrative to each of them or for example if you say okay there's this place in genesis 2 where god uh you know adam names all the animals and then a suitable helper for adam can't be found right now if we're postulating what we've said relative to, to your book there were human women on not planet earth at that time not, not in the garden and he's in the garden Right. So, so what that, so we would postulate then what the garden means would be a little bit different than maybe we would have thought otherwise. Like, as we postulate these other things in. This and not be very clear. I mean, like, the, about a third of chapter two is devoted to explore, explaining that Genesis is only one part of the earth. It's narrowly defined that the garden. About, you, yeah, the, the garden. garden you mean, yeah, yeah. Genesis three is saying the way how the fall comes is not by, is by just kicking you out of the garden. I mean, if you read Genesis clearly, it's very clear that the, there's the garden and then there's the rest of the earth. There's a border. There's ends up being an angel that comes down with a sword to prevent people from entering back in. Anyone, I mean, if you're going to read Genesis and care about it, the only way you could say that this garden extends across the entire earth is if you're trying to argue somehow that, like, I don't know, Adam and Eve is like exiled to the moon or something. Like, what's going on? I mean, the, the scripture is very clear that, that, that that's the case. Um I think what's going on is that we right. just uh, we just forget that somehow. It's not because of the text. It's because of how we've been taught by a particular tradition that neglected that fact of scripture. But if you read it for itself, that's why I'm just telling you. As a- no, no. no I, but like, what I was saying, I was not postulating that the garden was a whole earth or anything. But like, would it? But like, for example, people have argued, or in the history of the church, of like, what was the purpose of the garden? Was the garden? like the place that Adam and Eve were supposed to live forever? Or was it a preparatory place in which yeah. they were to experience the developmental developmental nature of humanity? So you, 
in which sure. God may have expected them to be there for 500 years, learning all the knowledge of good and evil in its proper yeah. order. But when it was stolen through the yeah, episode yeah. of the snake, then they were pressed out into the world because that like that work could no longer be done. So now all that was now that all that was left to do is to, like is to then and then to put this new humanity in with the rest of the humanity and then just work for the redemption of all of it a different way. Yeah, right? I, like, I would say. But see, see that. What I, okay, so here's the point I'm making: is that as we go through these different postulations of what might have happened, different parts of Scripture, then their theological and moral present applications will change. Well, I don't. At least somewhat. And now the issue is. Well, how do I apply it to my life right now? And the answer is, well, it depends on which of the theory hypotheses you pick on the, what these I, what these things will mean relative to you I mean, now. I mean, you could which, make that case. I'm arguing against that. I'm saying that actually pretty much nothing changes because if you understand in Scripture what it's talking about humanity, it's talking about Adam and even their descendants. And then the people that aren't that aren't around anymore. I don't I don't know what changes at all. Um, I mean, you'd have to explain to me what's changes because I don't, I don't know. I don't see what changes. It just seems to be if you, if you take that technical definition from a hermeneutical point of view, what human is and apply it to Romans five, you apply it to um, to all. I mean, like to, to you know, Acts one eight to to Acts uh, 17, all these places. I'm just left with no difference than that traditional view. Now, I mean, maybe there's a difference. I can't see it. It's going to take a lot of work to find it. Um, I mean, I'd be really curious to hear what you're saying the difference is. Mm-hmm. It's just it's just postulating the idea of what young earth creationists already, already postulate. A lot of them postulate the idea of Nephilim, Nephilim interbreeding, like angels interbreeding with humans. Mm-hmm. And some creation, young earth creationists think that that's what happened. Some don't. There's debate about that. Some church fathers thought that was what happened. Some of them don't. And none of that has any impact on our idea of Romans 5, because whatever was going on, Nephilim weren't what, uh, you know, those that those external lineages weren't what Scripture was talking about. And so it's not really clear what the conflict is. I mean, this isn't any different than postulating the idea of, uh, well, it's, it is different in some probably some ways that make it easier because these people aren't around. If we discovered intelligent life on another planet, it would raise the same sorts of uh, the same sorts of questions, but it wouldn't undermine scripture. It would just mean that there's like people out there that scripture didn't talk about. So I'm, I'm still. Yeah. Can you explain to me what the conflict is? I mean, I don't let me know. give you let me give you like one little example, which I think we probably shouldn't pursue because I want to let Stan like bring us home with a, a good. I'm sure he has some great line of questioning to. So for example, okay, when somebody says, "Young man says, tell me, Nick, like I want to have sex with like every pretty girl there is, like." How do you explain that brokenness in my sexuality, right? Now, I would say something like this. Okay, well, um, historically, Christians have explained epithumia, or there's this there's this effect of the fall in which our passions, as they should have been ordered in true humanity, have been disordered and put out of whack with the fall. And so they are in excess and are twisted. Now, when Adam and Eve exited the garden, they intermarried with a population of human beings who were produced by natural selection. Not by immediate creation. Well, they were produced by a providential process governed by God that was created in a way that, I mean. Right. But but a big part of that providence was the survival mechanism creating actions of things like natural selection, which may have produced certain kinds of things in the human, the way humans have emotion, the way their brains function, all these kinds of things, which may also, through that evolutionary process, not have been ordered to moral ends, but to survival ends. 
And those may not be in line with God's commands as they come through the moral line that comes through revelation or whatever. So therefore, inside your whatever sin is in you may be, so as a evolutionary scientist explains the way your biology functions and that you're, you might be driven to mate with any reproducible human woman, that is that is also inside your makeup as well as the epithumia of blah, blah, blah. I might, I might describe it differently if I believe that that this interbreeding and, and the production of human beings is all different. Does that make sense? Like, like there are uh, ways in which you would describe some, things differently. There's some scientific misunderstandings in what you're saying that are pretty significant. So first of all, that story that you gave from evolution, I mean, is – is at best highly contested, if not flat out false. So, um, so that, I mean, I, wait, that natural selection selected the characteristics of us that have proceeded that that's contested. Well, we know the vast majority of the way how evolution proceeds is not by natural selection. So, I mean, so we already know that. Um, and the question too, is, is that humans are particularly promiscuous or, or monogamous? I think actually that's not actually clear. What you see actually is not so much, um, a competitive fight, um, in human origins, but actually, uh, like the survival of the friendliest, really, really the like this idea that that cooperation becomes really critical in understanding human evolution, and our propensity for co- cooperation is really critical for understanding you know who we are as humans, and so I think what, what's going on it's actually what's going on what you're bringing this to, which I think is good, is you're taking this very legitimate question of a person coming and saying I really feel okay, I want to have sex with every girl. And you're asking, well, is that really what makes you human? Is that really the best form of humanity? Is that really what it is? And I think part of what's underlying this is something that I would also call, there is definitely some scientific misunderstandings that are really worth pursuing to really understand, because I think it actually shows what we're actually seeing in science isn't quite as far apart from scripture than you might think. It's not that story. It's a different story. That's one thing. The other piece that I think is pretty important is that uh, is that we have to kind of move past the naturalistic fallacy. That's the idea is that because the way things are this way, that means that's the way they're supposed to be because that's, you know, what our nature is in some way. It doesn't mean that that's actually morally good. The reality is part of the Christian message is that there's things in our nature uh, that we think are the best of who we are, but really aren't that they're wrong. That they're, that they're not actually the way how God intended it the best way. It's often because there's good things that have been taken and misapplied. And that's still true. Even if God gave us a, uh, a sex drive through evolution, that's still true that we could misapply that, that, uh, that, uh, that sex drive in ways that don't make sense. And to be clear, there's nothing in science that gives us the right or wrong about what is the right way to apply our sex drive and what's the wrong way. We don't get that from science. Science doesn't actually give us those sorts of morals. So, mm-hmm. so I agree with that. I definitely agree with that. Yeah. And so that sort of uh, conflict is, it seems like a lot of work to make a conflict where there isn't one. What we know is that God created us in a way that has the potential for great good. But we have this pattern of taking things that are made with great good and using them for great evil. And that's true of the people outside the garden and the people inside the garden. And we're descendants of both of them. And whether, I mean, how those desires came there, maybe it was through partly natural processes and, or maybe, or maybe, or, or maybe it was through God's direct intervention at times. We don't really know. But either way, we have that same capacity and we're fallen. So I, I'm not actually sure. Can you explain to me what I missed? And I know you're saying you're done on this, but I, 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 maybe there's something wrong with me and I just don't I'm understand. At, I'm I, at, the conflict. I, 
I'm actually just encouraging because I think Stan usually takes things in interesting directions. So what I'm I'm I, I for those of you listening, I type to Stan. I think I'm done. Why don't you ask him questions? So no, I so I I actually think that this point is too complicated for this medium. <laughs> I'm concerned about because. I, we're not firing exactly on the same line of things on this. And I, I think we're missing a little bit. So I, I, I'm, I don't think pursuing this. I think what you're, I think the point that you're making to people is the point people should take away with this is that you're, what you're saying is even if there are things in how we understand Genesis and understand our natural history that are variant to like what we have thought or different than maybe anybody in church history has ever thought because we've never had some of the scientific knowledge before. And maybe like as we take the scientific knowledge and then look at scripture again and see what is there, isn't there based on this new knowledge, maybe we're going to actually think something nobody's ever thought before, but it might still be a hundred percent faithful to the scriptures themselves. And it might change our thinking, but it might be surprising how little it changes our theology, especially yeah. post new Testament relative to the gospel and relative to our understanding of things like human dignity and so on. That, so I, I think agree. that's what, I think that's what you're saying. And I think that that's worth people taking from this rather than I think Nick was arguing with Professor Swamidas. Is that nice? Yeah. Well, like, I, also, I don't want that to be the thing people take away from this. Also, you're, you're not unique in thinking of those some things. And, you know, in the same way we've actually had to untangle the distinctions and ancestry here, I think there's a lot of been, been a lot of confusion about what, what science is actually really telling us about our nature. That, yes, and I, I think part of the issue here is is that just like preachers say a lot of bad theology, there are a lot of scientists that say a lot of bad theology. Well, apparently a lot of bad science yeah, because there's yeah. nothing I've said that is not absolutely in line with a number of like popular, well-regarded and properly credentialed scientists. And mm-hmm. so like, like this, the, apparently this, I mean, in part, this is fairly new stuff. Like some of this stuff we've known yeah. for like less than 10 or 20 years. And sometimes people think like you, there's like scientific knowledge that comes out, the press puts it in a story. And now that's just like part of science in the world. And like, no, like these processes, even with like scientific discoveries, sometimes they take decades to like work out what they mean. Yeah. And is it right? And how does it apply to this? And how does it apply to that? And was that really true? Or did we just get half of a truth? And then we like put like, you know, like a lot, like a lot of the brain scanning stuff over the last 20 years, people were like, well, now that we can like image the brain, we know all this stuff. And then it turns out, well, yeah, we, it did, but it, it also doesn't tell us certain things we thought it was telling us, but then it was, but now we know these other things too. And then there's this. And so like, so, so what I'm saying is, is like, I think there's a lot of science in the kind of stuff even you're talking about. I'm not saying anything you're saying was wrong. I'm just saying like some of the some of the stuff is fairly new, and so it's gonna it might take us 50 years to like sort this all out. And by then, there's gonna be 50 more years of science <laughs> that's gonna be disorienting us, and we'll be sorting that out too. And like with this process, will never end. And I think also, you know, you're, you're completely right on all of this. And I would also say, too, that, you know, the scientific literature is very nuanced in details on the scientific details. And vast also. And vast <laughs> and yes. changing. But here's the thing. When it comes to the public, it's usually distilled down to a narrative. And that narrative at its, at its best is consistent with the scientific story, but extends way beyond the scientific story, yes. even in the best senses. And so... Um, now, as a scientist, like Stan's nodding because he knows he's a scientist. You know, we can we're a little bit better at times because we're trained in science of just thinking what's like the gloss, what's mm. the narrative, what's the poetry. That's right. And what actually is the science saying? And um, and some people and, you know, the poetry ends up reflecting, uh, you know, the. The, the times and, you know, the motives of the person who's talking about it. And you could do good things with that. You could do bad things with that. 
And, you know, that's not necessarily science. It's just maybe the story that a person is telling about the science. Oh, yeah. well, we as somebody whose academic training is in the social sciences, I surely understand that. <laughs> and so a lot of what you're saying isn't actually what science is saying. That's just stories that people have said about the science that actually, to be honest, are kind of in tension with the data. Yeah. And, uh, and even if you press these people on them, they probably wouldn't press them back. They would say, yeah, that was just the way I was spinning it for a larger, a larger story for the public. Now, I would say this is also one, another reason why having scientists like myself and others actually engaging the public to tell stories about it, that um, we're going to do it in a way that serves the common good and that makes space for Christian belief is really important. I mean, that's part of the reason why um, I launched Peaceful Science is, that uh, you know, these stories are important. They extend beyond science. And, uh, you know, I think that, I don't know, does that make sense, Nick? Yeah. Yeah. Can you, before we like, I think Stan wants to do like a summary thing before we get to that. Can you say a little bit about peaceful science? Cause before you were like, I'm not part of an organization, but there are endeavors that you're doing relative to how these conversations are happening. Could you say a little bit about peaceful science so people know about it? Yeah. So I'm a professor at WashU, but you know, I kind of found the spot where I realized that there really isn't any organizations that are really making, you know, really helping, um, you know, really good science come to, come to the public, particularly the church in a way that made sense to them. And so um, in a way that wasn't going to be narrowly confined by a particular theology, but really just uh, try and make space. And, uh, you know, all, especially in origins, everyone comes with a particular answer. And, uh, you know, I wanted to think about how do I actually become a person who serves a church, even people who disagree with me and not come with a particular answer to start out with, but to really be willing to engage the questions that people have. I found out there was a lot of other scientists, including non-Christian scientists that really cared about that, too. And so we've been kind of organizing uh, at Peaceful Science. You can find us at peacefulscience.org. Uh, we have a mailing list. Uh, uh, maybe you want to chip in, uh, you know, you know, one buck a month or five bucks a month would really help us out at this stage too. But you know, the, we're finding out that there's just a real opportunity for us to serve the common good. So it's a civic practice of science where there's a lot of practicing scientists engaging, really doing scientific work, but also you know, uh, willing to answer questions that are arising in the public and really try to help you uh, uh, work through your own beliefs, even if it's not our own. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're doing there and hope you can join us. Yeah. Yeah. Did you have any thoughts, Stan? Yeah, I guess I, you know, I think though that one of the things where the the conflict really sur- revolves around is what Nick, as Nick said in the youth ministry. What are we going to teach our kids? You know, in the in our particular like ecclesi- like church family, what is our church family going to teach our kids when there's diversity on this? And in college ministry, um, I get to see what happens. Like I get yeah. to see what's. I get to see what's downstream of that. And what I guess pastorally, what I see is that um, when the when a certain reading of Genesis is tied to the faith authority as, of scripture, author, the authority of scripture and tie, you know, is made non-negotiable, um, they come in very brittle and we lose them. Um, we lose a much higher proportion of them um, than if, you know, honestly, there are there are not a lot of words in Genesis 1 and 2, and it says some very precise things, but then we, we furnish the spaces between those words with our imaginations, with an image that we saw in a, in a picture Bible when we were a kid, and um, are sometimes surprised to find that those details aren't in Genesis 1 and 2. And so, uh, you know, allowing some space to for options allowing positions that the uh that the bible does not forbid and 
I, that, that, that provides the kind of robustness that when they come to me, um, we can work with. Yeah, I would agree. Just remember that what guards a student's faith is the gospel. So they also need to know about Jesus. I think um, a lot of these students that really struggle, they've been told that if if uh, young earth creationism is true, then Genesis is false. If Genesis is false, you can't trust the Bible. You can't trust the Bible. You know, there's no reason to hold on to Jesus rising from the dead. And that's just a false gospel. That's a lie. That's not true. And um, I mean, that's that's how it's said by the leading uh, young earth creationist ministry. Um, that's almost a near quote, um, a near verbatim quote. The reality is, is that Jesus is the cornerstone. If they find Jesus, he's good and he's real. And that's the only reason we care about Genesis anyways. <laughs> um, that's the way how we know that scripture is trustworthy. It's because we encountered Jesus. And so it's literally the other way around. It's, so it's an epistemological ordering issue, right? It's about... Um, it's not just about believing the right things, but believing them in the right order. I mean, starting with Jesus. But you would agree, Joshua, wouldn't you, that like, it's like dispensationalists will um, will tell us this all the time. It's just like where you come, when you're starting the thing makes a difference. So Andy Stanley said this recently, like, like we start with the resurrection of Jesus. That's why you care about the ancient Jewish holy books. Otherwise, like, you know, like Europeans or maybe like Indian people, but in your background, like, why would you have ever cared about like these Jewish holy books from 3,000 years ago? The reason we care about them is because we believe Jesus rose from the dead. That came to us through the preaching of the church in the gospel. We've believed in Jesus. However, that does lead us back to Jesus saying things like in the gospels, like none of the scriptures will pass away, not one bit of it, to where we come to believe through the writings of the apostles in Jesus that the whole of the canon of scripture is the word of God written. Now, once you come to that commitment, now the whole word of God written is stands before us as something authoritative. So if we go back to Genesis and we we feel like we're put in a situation where we can't affirm that it's right, that it's true. That's hard. Then that could that could then then I think the young earth creationist is true from a pathological level that like an like an intellectual pathology starts in the human psychology that says wait a second wait if Genesis is wrong if if, if because evolution is true Genesis is wrong then Genesis is wrong but Genesis is part of the canon. And the, it's the canon that testifies about Jesus through the Gospels. Yeah. So maybe the testimonies about Jesus are wrong, and maybe I was wrong to believe in Jesus. That's very and, human and understandable. It just turns out to right. be wrong. Because the fact of the matter is that what we're seeing is we're perceiving a conflict between Genesis and these things. And I think we have to hold that open and say, hey, there's things that I don't understand. Right. I think that's a claim stand making. That, and, and it can even feel like it's in total conflict. And I can affirm things that are even contradictory in the meantime. Yeah. Just but you wouldn't that. say that if a young earth creationist says the authority of scripture all the way back to Genesis is an important thing in our faith. It is. And you wouldn't dispute that. What you're disputing, no. what, Stan, what Stan is saying is if we if we get too specific about Genesis based on other things we think in the way we think it goes together. And we say oh, that's what Genesis means. I'm saying that, that scripture is authoritative, but it's not the foundation that replaces Christ. Christ is the foundation. Christ is the the cornerstone. He's the why about that's the foundation I have for taking the authority of scripture is important. But so don't you think that that's a, there's a reciprocating relationship between Jesus is the ontological foundation that Jesus rose from the dead, but we come to know about Jesus and receive like solid historical testimony about his life, death and resurrection through the scriptures, at least the gospels. Well, the scriptures do, do a test to do. So what I'm saying, that and, Jesus and there's important. like a reciprocating oh, relationship between the two. Yeah. So I think scripture is in submission to Christ as well. So, you know, um, so, yes, I do. I, what I'm saying, 
you know, it's funny when I talk, so this is something that I have thought and I have really struggled to find words to talk about for a long time because I was, I've been in probably like standard evangelical context where we, we talk about these things differently. And I'm an evangelical too, to be clear. One thing that really helped us talking to Lutherans, I'm not a Lutheran, but they, a lot of the language I'm using here is actually what I've learned uh, from talking to people, for example, uh, in, the, in the Missouri Synod Lutheran uh, Seminary nearby. And, and they just really emphasize that this idea that it's actually the epistemological ordering is important, is that Jesus is the foundation of scripture. Yes, scripture attests to Jesus, mm-hmm. uh, but it's similar to maybe the relationship between Jesus and John. John came before Jesus, um, and he had testified of Jesus, but Jesus is still the foundation. You, you might be at a point where you um, are confused by John, but if you understand Jesus, that's enough. And uh, the only reason why ultimately you care about John the Baptist is because you encountered Jesus. And, uh, and so what I'm not saying is Jesus only. I'm not saying the gospel only, which is this idea that all you need is Jesus, period, and don't go any further than that. That's kind of an anti-intellectual view that's disconnected from the church. But I am saying yeah. Jesus first. The idea that we start with Jesus and who he is and how we know that. And yes, it includes scripture, but it's also things outside of scripture who testified who Jesus is too. Um, it's, you know, there's there's a lot of things outside of scripture that testify to who he is as well. You start with him first. You have that as a foundation, the cornerstone. And I think first John is really helpful too. It talks about how, it talks about that that idea of Jesus being the center is that what children need to know is that they, that they really come to know the father. Right. But then it says that the young men, they come to know scripture they, and they, def, and they've, they've done battle with the evil one. And I think that there is this value of kind of moving away from that scripture starting point to then looking at other things, looking at Genesis more deeply and looking at it and even finding out ideas that you think are wrong and fighting them. That's all good. But then what it says is that that's not the end point. The end point is actually to return to the place you began as like a father to know the one who was from the beginning to this place of relationship with God. So you can kind of see this movement back and forth in maturity. And I think it starts, I think Jesus is the alpha, but he's also the omega. I think that, that he's the, he's the place where we enter in the very beginning and he's the place that we end up in the very end. And he's with us in all the journey along the way. And I think that is the cornerstone, that relationship that gives us the ability to tolerate the diversity. This is, this is a bit of a different statement than what, what, what Stan is saying. And we're kind of going on long here. I hope it's okay to explain that and, and it makes some sense. And I, and I understand it's feeling a little bit uncomfortable, but I'm just trying to give you a sense of where it's coming from. It's not just me out of left field too. Yeah, no, it's, I think it's, I think it's good. But this has been a great conversation too. I mean, I really appreciate it. It sounds like you guys have a, a really a, a thoughtful community really trying to engage these issues with this really diverse. And I'll be really curious to hear what the younger earth creationists think about what I've said. We have a lot of thoughts and opinions. Yeah. That is, there's <laughs> no shortage of such things, but I mean, like I, I you and I say to everyone, like, you're, like, you're trying to do peaceful theology and I, I have like a no bullying policy. Like it functional, it functions pretty similar. Um, but like, um, yeah, I just, anyway, Stan, any last summary thoughts before we, before I name the book and close it up? No, name the book. It's, it, it's a, it's a great contribution. The Genealogical Adam and Eve, The Surprising Science of Universal Ancestry by S. Joshua Swamidas. Yeah, thanks for having me. Professor at um, Washington University in in Missouri. Like, there's great science happening in Missouri. So don't be bigoted about the Middle (laughs) Southland. That's right. 
That's right. right. That's if you, take that away from this too. All right. Yes. <laughs> Thanks so much for being with us, Joshua. It's a, it was a pleasure. I know for Stan and for myself, this is a Stan. And I don't even talk that much like, but we got to do this together. So this is great. Um, so thanks for being with us. Um, we'll see you guys next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the engage and equip podcast. If you like this episode, Rate us, review us on your favorite podcast platform, and also share this episode with a friend. That is the best way that we have to reach new listeners. If you have an idea for a question that you want us to answer on the podcast or just a general podcast topic, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org and we'll do our best to fit it in. Also, if you'd like to find more episodes of the podcast, you can do so by going to highpointchurch.org slash podcast, or else we're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, other apps like that. So until next time, thanks for joining us for this episode of Engage and Equip.